If you have your Bibles with you, we're, we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll have the words up here on the screen to, to follow along with, but uh, Ephesians chapter 1 will be where we begin. And I, I was a teacher for 13 years, and um, at, whenever I, I first started out, uh, my first semester of teaching was the worst semester of teaching I had all through it. And things progressively got better. But the thing that really made a difference is whenever I finally figured out and understood where I fit in the grand scheme of things. So the, the education system is a very complicated system. And, and, of course, there is a lot of moving parts that all have to get in place. You know, that, that when you, if you were to count it up, the number of light bulbs that are in those buildings, just here in Mount Vernon, as small a district as we are, that's a lot of light bulbs that all have to get changed at some point or another. And that alone is a logistical issue that many of us don't want to have to deal with. And when you think about all the moving parts that go into making a school function the way that it is, it's a very big, complicated thing. And if you have a misunderstanding about what your job description is in an organization like that, you can be one of the most frustrated people on the planet. And I don't know, this probably applies to a lot of other things as well. If you had a different idea of your job description than your boss had of your job description, you can imagine that would be a very frustrating situation, wouldn't it? Where you think, I think I'm doing a very good job, and your boss thinks that you're not doing a very good job. Sometimes the, the difference is that you guys have a different idea of what your job description really is. And, and it's whenever we, we come to an understanding, whenever we figure out what it is that we are there to do, there can be a lot of freedom that comes at that revelation. And, and it, it definitely came for me in, in the field of teaching. And it, it was, I don't know if it was my second year or third year or fourth year, but at some point I recognized what my part was. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't this big. That's what freed me up. Because I thought that I had to go and, and figure out all the things that these students needed to learn in the field of physics. And, and I needed to parse that down to something that, that I could fit into a year. And then somehow I needed to take all that information and organize it in such a way that it would make sense for them to understand it. And then I needed to take those organized systems and, and then make lessons individually out of those things and then deliver those messages to students and then make sure that they retained all that information for the rest of their lives. And that was way too big of a chunk for me to try to take on. And, and I don't remember who it was that originally said it to me or, or if it was just several times I heard it before I figured out that in the system of education, there are a lot of people working. And that there are people who are taking the full body of the field of physics and they are parsing that down to what high school students need to know. I didn't have to do that. And they are taking those things and they are organizing that information into nice, you know, understandable chunks of information. I don't have to do that. And there are people out there who have even written lessons and worksheets and they have made tests available online. I didn't have to do all of those things that I was doing. But I recognized my particular part in the process. And that was communicating with the students I had in the room. And whenever I got to the point that I recognized my job in this big scheme of things, there are people who are really good at researching and figuring out how to organize information, but they couldn't stand in front of a group of teenagers and talk to them about physics. That's my part. 
And I like doing that part. And I could do that part much better and with more freedom and a whole lot less stress when I understood what my role was in the grand scheme of things. And so a part of that is just understanding, first of all, who you are and, and what the overall function is. And, and then you understand, I have a part to play in this. I'm not the whole thing. I'm not responsible for the end game. I am responsible for a piece that contributes to something bigger. And, and I think the same thing is true in the church today. There are a lot of people who stay out of the game, who are staying on the sidelines, who are staying in the pews, because they say, this is way too big for me to get involved with. I can't solve that. But you, they're not recognizing that they just play a small part. And if they will do their part and do it well, it will contribute to something much, much bigger than they are. And, and I, I think the same thing is true today. And so today what I want to talk to you about is I want to talk to you, I've titled this as, Who is the Church? I know we've talked about that a little bit already, and, and in fact, in, in the last two sermons that we've talked about, <clears throat> we've really hit this again and again, but today we're going to really focus in. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is writing a letter, and he's writing this letter to a church at Ephesus, and this is how he begins his letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from, the, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pause right there and go back. He addresses this letter. He identifies who he is. And then he says, to the saints. To the saints. And of course, he's not talking about people from New Orleans. Right? And, and, and he's, he's, he, he's not talking about those saints that go marching in. Right? He is talking to these people who are in Ephesus. And he refers to them as saints. And that word saints, it literally means holy ones. The, the word saint is something that is set apart. It is holy. All right? it, is, it is dedicated to the Lord. It is something that is set apart from the rest. As something that is dedicated. And it, it, we know that saints are those who have been washed clean of their sins. They have been set apart from sin. And they've been filled with the Holy Spirit to battle against sin. When Paul writes this letter to, to the people in Ephesus, he calls them saints. Now listen, you've heard people say, well, I'm no saint, but, right? Well, if you're a believer, you are a saint. There's no extra restrictions. He wasn't writing to a bunch of people who had, you know, performed at least two miracles, you know, or, or whatever the, the process is. I, I know that there are people that we really recognize as doing great things. You know, that we bestow this, this extra title of sainthood on. But really and truly in the scriptures, you're a saint if you believe in Jesus. Because you have been set apart. And he, he refers to this church at Ephesus. And let me tell you, there are problems within the church at Ephesus that he has to address in this letter. They're not perfect people, but they are saints because God has made them that. Let's continue on in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, heavenly places in Christ. That's a lot of blessing. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Listen, what this passage of Scripture tells us is that we are saints whenever God did the work of saving us. The saints are those who are set apart, but how are they set apart? They're set apart by Christ. It says that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. And in that word adoption, we find yet another analogy for what the church is. We talked two weeks ago about how the church is a building and Christ is the chief cornerstone. And, and on Him, everything else hinges. On Him, everything else is built up. And He has to be preeminent. But we are holy stones who are being fitted together to build the church of God. Last week we talked about the church is a body. That the, there are many members, there are many parts of a body that all have to work together and do their part in order for the body to function fully. And here we see that the church is a family into which you and I have been adopted. We have been invited into the family through adoption. It wasn't any work that we did. It wasn't because we were so special. It wasn't because we had done great things for God or, or even that we could do great things for God. It is simply because God chose us. Just as we see in the Old Testament where God chose Abraham and then blessed him and blessed the whole world through him, God has chosen you and God has chosen me according to his wisdom and understanding according to His graciousness and blessing. And we are saints, and we become part of that family. We become part of the church because of the work that God did on our behalf. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, also written by Paul, this is a parallel passage, and he is, he is using the same analogy about what it means to become a part of the family. And one of the emphases, uh, emphases, I should say, of Romans is that there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. In, in other words, there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the eyes of God. All are eligible for salvation. All have been purchased by the blood of Christ. All have sinned and fall short, and all are welcomed into the family of God. And in Romans chapter 8, he says this in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You hear that family analogy in here. He says this, You have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And for the first time a couple weeks ago, I heard somebody 
preach out of this, and, and he, he said that the word Abba is Aramaic for daddy, and then where we translate father, it's the Greek word. And what he's doing, he's saying, listen, it doesn't matter if you're of the Jewish lineage, if you speak Aramaic, or if you're Greek and you speak the common tongue of the, the, the whole world, it's the same father. We use this different words, but he is the same God. It doesn't matter what your background is. He has invited you into his family. He has given you a spirit of, ad of adoption. It says the spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are children of God. God puts his spirit in our heart to confirm for us that God has chosen us and invited us into his family. And if that has happened, then you are a member of the church. You are a part of the church of God. And it's important that we understand how we got here and what the overall picture is and, and so that we can understand our role within it. But God chose us, adopted us to be His children. It says, if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we might also be glorified with Him. God is sharing with us the inheritance that belongs to Christ. And we are welcomed into that family. And listen, it is so important that we understand who we are and how we got here because we need to know how we got here so that we understand our mission as we look outward at others. There was nothing so special about me that made me desirable in the eyes of God that he would send his son to die for me, except that God is love. And he wanted to pour out his love. It wasn't because of who I was, it was because of who he is. There's nothing that I could do that would earn or even repay what he's done for me. It is purely because of Him and His love and His grace toward us that we are saved. And when we are saved, we are welcomed into the family of God. We are a part of the church. Now, as we said a couple of weeks ago, the main objective of the church is to glorify Jesus. And that's as helpful as saying that the main objective of the school system is to educate children. Then the question becomes, well, how do I do that? And how do I fit into that? And where do I belong in this big process? And what does that look like as we try to be the church today? And today I, I want to share with you, first of all, out of James chapter 1. If you've never read the book of James, uh, let me just tell you, if you want somebody who just says what he thinks, the book of James is for you. If you like a straight shooter, you know, be careful. He'll step on your toes. And he'll call you out on some things. But I love how he just puts things so bluntly. Sometimes we need to hear exactly that kind of thing. But he says this in James chapter 1, verse 27. He says this, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Pure and undefiled religion is this. Now, in, in recent years, the word religion has fallen on some really, really bad times. The word religion has kind of become, a, a, well, in our culture, a very negative word. 
know, oh, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And that's true. But if you have a relationship, it's going to affect your religion. Religion is just basically how you live out your relationship with Christ. How you live out what has happened to you on the inside. Religion is the outward practice of an inward belief. So whenever we come together for religious practices, religious observances, according to what the IRS says we're doing here today, whenever we come together for these practices, what we're doing is we are living out, we are putting into practice, we are giving actual action and activity to an internal belief that we have. And that's what I'm saying that, that we need here. We know that we are children of God and that He adopted us into the family. So what do we do outwardly as a result of that? How do we practice this religion that we have? And notice that James doesn't list going to church regularly as a pure and undefiled religion. He doesn't list giving tithes and offering as pure and undefiled religion. Because those things can become impure and defiled. It doesn't take much time or much experience in a church to see how that can happen. There are people who join the church about the same time they list their candidacy for office. And there are people who give finances to the church so that they can push the church in a particular direction or threaten to stop giving finances so that they can make the church move in a direction they want it to go in. Those things can get very defiled. But if you're helping orphans and looking after widows, James says it's hard to do that in a defiled manner. He's saying pure and undefiled religion is this. Look after those who are forgotten. Look after those who are helpless. Look after those who are kicked to the side. The reality is we should look like the one who saved us. If we're going to live out the faith that we have, we're going to live out the truth that we are adopted as sons of God, then we should look like our big brother, Jesus. And we should act like Jesus acted. Now, Jesus was accused on many occasions of spending too much time with sinners. Let me tell you, the church is not accused of that today in America. But Jesus was accused of spending too much time with sinners. In fact, he shocked his disciples, his own disciples, the ones who heard all of his messages whenever he sat down and spoke with a Samaritan woman at the well. He touched the sick and the blind to make them well again. The practice of our faith should look like Jesus' practice. What we do in response to being adopted into the family is we should take up the family values. And we should love the way that Jesus loved. We should do what Jesus does. And that's a big scheme, but it gives us an idea of what it looks like. Is sitting down and having a conversation with a Samaritan woman a big thing to do? No. We have conversations every day. And yet it was such an integral part of Jesus' ministry that the Gospels record it for the rest of eternity. That means the conversation could have a significance for eternity. And any of us can do that. 
There are many, many ways in which we live out our faith, but the, the main principle is this. We are looking after those who are forgotten, those who are marginalized, those who are overlooked or helpless. Now listen, the early church, as they were presented the gospel, this is in Acts chapter 2. So this is right after Jesus rose. In Acts chapter 2, Paul, no, excuse me, Peter, Paul wasn't named Paul yet, sorry. Peter stands up and he addresses this crowd of people. See, this loud sound like a rushing wind had, had happened and then the disciples started to speak in languages they didn't know. And they were praising God and this crowd gathered around to see what was going on because it really seemed weird. And then they said, aren't these people from Galilee? Aren't these those rednecks from Galilee? How do they know all of our different languages? Because people from all over the world had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. And they were there, and they heard them speak in their own languages. How do these rednecks learn all these languages? They didn't. The Spirit of God was speaking through them and giving them utterance to speak all the languages of the world. And Peter stands up and he addresses the crowd and he says, Listen, God has been in charge from the very beginning of time. You are his chosen people and he led you out of the wilderness and he told you a Messiah was coming and that the, the people of this world would rise up against him. And that happened in this very city. Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And you guys just put him to death. And yet, by his death, you can be free. And they say, what can we do to be saved? They see the truth because it's the Spirit of God speaking directly to their hearts. And they say, what can we do to be saved? And he says, believe in Jesus and be baptized. And, and they follow suit and they begin to follow Jesus. And they don't know what to do with themselves except this. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The only thing they knew to do was to gather together. Why? They wanted to help people. They wanted to meet needs. And they knew that they would be more effective if they came together as a group. And they began to meet in each other's homes. They began to share meals with each other. They would discuss the scriptures. They would pray together. They would tell and retell the stories of Jesus and they would listen to the apostles as they explained how this had been God's plan all along through the Old Testament. And they had favor with all the people because they were being gracious to all the people. You know what the first dispute was in the church? The first argument was, we're not doing, taking care of the widows evenly. In other words, we're taking care of widows... But there's a little bit of unevenness in how we're taking care of the widows. And they said, you know what? We need people to manage that. Find people you trust and let them handle that. But they were already taking care of widows. 
There was no campaign. There was no explanation that this is what should happen. It was just what naturally came out of them. James hadn't written his letter yet. But they knew that they should take care of the widows. Why? Because they had been adopted into the family of God. They knew that God had looked on them in their helpless estate and had given them a way to have fellowship with Him. And Paul took the gospel around to the known world. And everywhere he went, he shared the gospel and communities of gospel believers would come together and they would minister to their communities. And by their gracious outpouring of love, people would be gathered into the family of God. And this continues even today. As the gospel goes out into the world, many things accompany that. That's why churches and orphanages, if you read the history of how those things got started, excuse me, not not churches, I meant hospitals and orphanages around the world are started by missionaries or are started by the gospel impacting a community and people realize we need to take care of one another. And they begin organizations like that. And and sometimes that's clouded over in the the world that we live in today because of all the the bureaucracy and all the the corporation status and, and things like that that take place. But if you go back to where these things began, you look at what their core values are and what their mission is, you see that it is the gospel that has influenced them to have an impact in the world. For example, Baylor Hospital in Dallas. That, that hospital began as Texas Baptist Memorial Sanitarium. It was a hospital begun on the principle of, we need to take care of the sick. It was Christians who got together and said, we've got to do something. None of us can do it by ourselves, but if we gather together and we put this together as a group, we can start something where we can take care of people in need. You know I don't know anything about healing the sick. I've had a lot of attempt this week. But basically all I'm doing is making sure that number doesn't go over 103. But I can get together with a group of people that know how to do that. And by working together, we can accomplish great things. You've probably heard of Buckner International. The the Buckner... Uh, orphan's home over here in Dallas. That was started by a minister from Tennessee who moved to Texas just after the Civil War and he, he pastored Paris Baptist Church and he saw that the Civil War had left a mark and he said, you know what? These kids need a place to stay. And it was his Christian values and his compassion that led to him reaching out to other churches to say, you could contribute to this too. And, and now it's an international organization. They go into all parts of the world to take care of the orphans. That's the church being the church. That's the family of God welcoming others into the family of God. Compassion International is another one. I don't know if you've heard of this one. Compassion International allows you to adopt a child from another country. And all you, do, all you need to do at the very minimum is just send some money to make sure that their education and their food is paid for. We have a child that, that we have adopted. We needed another boy in the family. So we found a boy through Compassion International. And, and it's, it's like $38 a month. We can't go out to eat for $38. We can't eat at Taco Bell for $38. 
And yet, he gets his education and meals at school for an entire month. And we can do that. And the reason I can do that is because someone else, a, a, a minister, I didn't write his name down, but he went to South Korea just to minister to troops who were stationed there. And as he was there in South Korea ministering to the U.S. troops who were there, he saw this, this effect of war that had left all these orphans. And he saw the poverty that had swept through the country, and he said, there's got to be something we can do to help. And he founded an organization that grew and grew and grew, and because it became more impact, he took his name off of it, and he said, let's just call it Compassion. And now they're in all parts of the world doing this same ministry. Another one I wanted to mention is, is International Justice Mission. I don't know if you guys have heard of this one. Their goal is to end slavery. Period. Worldwide, every part of the world, we want to end slavery. Slavery is still going on. And they want to end it, and they're doing it. This is interesting. You wouldn't know just by the first glance that IJM is a, a Christian organization. That's not how they promote themselves. That's not really how they talk about themselves. They go into churches and they talk to churches. But they also go to corporations and talk to them about how they can partner to put an end to slavery worldwide. And they are literally on the ground taking girls out of brothels, freeing slaves from, from you know, indentured servanthood. And then they're also in the, the courthouses and in the, the houses of legislation, helping them write laws that put an end to slavery. They're working to put slavery out of business around the world. And the founder, he was an attorney. But he was a Christian. And what he saw was this is injustice. And I'm just a, an attorney. And I know how to write laws. I know how to argue cases. But I can do something for the world. I can do something for a few. And by using the skills that God gave him, using the practice that he had, he started an organization that is literally working on the very front lines of ending slavery. That's the church being the church. We could go on and on and on talking about missions around the world that people are, are on the front lines of ministering. Why? Because the gospel has impacted them. And they have found themselves in a position where they can make a difference. But some of these things are not international. There are many things that happen just right in our own back door. Right in our own backyard. We don't have to go around the world. We don't have to necessarily start an international organization. We just do what we know to do right here. God has gifted me in this way, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I can't solve everything. I can't do the, the whole thing. But I can do the part that God's called me to do. And whenever I find great joy and, and, and fulfillment in serving God in the way that I am uniquely designed to do it, I do it that much better. Most of you haven't 
haven't been here the whole time that we've been working together as a church. <laughs> um, we, we've done a lot of different things. And, and for a, a long time, I was leading music, praying while I'd take off the guitar, and then standing and preaching. For about two years, I did that. And, and I, I'll just tell you, you don't have to necessarily go back and research this. It, it showed that I was trying to do too much. And when Keetron came along and, and was willing to come and lead music, I had to talk to him twice, by the way. He, he went somewhere else at first. But I've, I've gotten over that. God brought him back. God has timing. It's all about timing. And now I can focus on my part. And whenever I can focus on my part, I can do it well and do it better. Listen, we're going to take this spiritual gifts test. And, and that's a portion of figuring out what God is calling you to do. But God wants to do more things than you could ever do by yourself. That's why we come together. That's why I, as a pastor, need you. I need Keetron to lead the music, but I need you to do your part too. I want us to be a church that meets the needs of this community. And I cannot do that all by myself. Now the part that I do, I'm going to do it to the very best of my ability. As I stand behind this pulpit and I try to teach the Word of God, as I, I, I sit in the office and I pray about God's direction for us moving forward, and I try to build connections and build unity within the, the church. Those things are I'm doing, but I can't do everything that has to be done. And I appreciate you guys for stepping up and getting involved and plugging in. And it's a big project. None of us are called to do it by ourselves, but when we come together as the body of Christ, we can begin to see God move. We can begin to see God do something greater than the sum of all the parts. It starts with little things like conversations. It starts with little things like just helping someone out whenever you have the chance and the opportunity. But then as you see God move in that way, you reach out and you find out there are other ways that you can help. And you'll see that God brings people into your life that have special abilities, special interests, special experiences that you don't have yourself. And if you'll be faithful to serve God with what you have, God will bring the rest of the pieces together. I know that God has plans to use this church to reach this community. I've been preaching it for years. And I see it coming together. I see God fitting the pieces together. It takes each of us recognizing God saved me. God reached down and chose me and adopted me into his family. And because of that, I want to do what I can for the community. I want to do what I can for his namesake. I want to help those who need help. I want to look after those who are easily forgotten. I can't solve the problem 
but I can help in one way or another. It takes all kinds of things. There's, there's one other organization that I, I really admire. I want to tell you about it. It's an organization called Charity Water. And I don't know if you, you're familiar with them or not, but what I find fascinating about this particular organization, I, I think the guy was like a graphic designer or a photographer or something like that. But what he did was he, he visited somewhere in the world and he saw that what these people needed more than anything else was just clean water. They were struggling with sickness constantly and, and what they needed more than anything else was just clean water. And he said, well, that should be a pretty simple thing and he began to look into it and figured out how much it would cost and things like that. But then when he set up his organization, this is what interested me the most. He set it up with two campaigns of you know, fundraising, two separate campaigns of fundraising. He runs a campaign to fundraise that 100% of what gets donated goes to the projects of delivering clean water to the communities they're in. And he provides all kinds of access where they can go in and they can see where, where the wells are, how much water they're producing, all kinds of things like that. And they, they can monitor those things. And if you give to Charity Water, you can you know, have access to all of that stuff. But he's made it so that 100% of the donations of people who want to give goes to those projects. Now, if you're processing credit cards for those donations, the credit card company wants a portion of that. And he says, no, 100%. If you give $100 and you use a credit card to do it, $100 is going to go to those projects. Well, what about that percentage of the, insur of the company? He said, we're going to take care of that on the administrative side. And so he set up a separate campaign just to raise money for the administrative costs of running the organization. I find that so fascinating because what he did is this. Is he gives the opportunity for people who are just interested in helping with the water project to give with full certainty that that whole gift is going to that project. But he also gives other people and this is what appeals to me, is I know that to provide water in the third world, it requires people who are answering emails. It, it requires people who are sitting in an office that has electricity. It requires mail-outs and postage and people who prepare tax statements. I, I mean, it, it requires a whole host of behind-the-scenes work. And I can choose to say, you know what? That's worth it to me. Because I know that it's the behind-the-scenes stuff. As a minister in a church, I know that there's a whole lot more that goes on besides what the community sees on the outside. In order for a church to function and be what it's called to be, it requires a lot of little moving parts. And to me, that's what's so important, is the people who are behind the scenes helping to make things run. A, a church can't have an impact in a community if there's not people who are building relationships inside the walls of the church first. And there are so many ways that we can do that. So many ways that we can just step outside of ourselves and say, can I help you? 
Can I be there for you? Would, would you like to come and have dinner? Food is always a good way to get that started. There are so many ways that we can build the community within the church so that we can reach the community outside the church. And it's those inward, tiny, moving parts, those little things behind the scenes that make so much of a difference. And when we understand that there is a big mechanism, we can be overwhelmed. I've been there many, many times. I've said, this is too big. I've argued with God a lot of times about starting up a church. It's too much. I cannot do it. But I'll do what you've called me to do. I'll do the parts I know how to do, and I'll learn the parts I have to learn. But God is sending people in to fill in the gaps. This is going to be a church that belongs to Him, where we can participate in the ministry of this community but it's going to take all of us working in the little ways that we can to build what God wants to build here. And there's freedom in that. You know, as we call for ministries to get filled, as we call for, hey, listen, we need someone to do this. Don't say, well, that's way too big of a job. Just say, well, I can do this part of it. You know, we, we want to meet needs of the community like the food pantry. Well, I can't necessarily organize an entire food pantry, but you know what I can do? I, I could answer a phone, or I, I could give, take messages and call people back, or, or I could you know, stamp envelopes or, or something like that. I'll give of my time. I'll give of my energy. I'll, I'll give in ways that I can give. And there's great freedom in that. You don't have to take on the whole project. Just like I learned that I was not responsible for my students having every bit of physics knowledge for the rest of their lives. I just had to present the information in that room. Well, I knew how to do that. There's a little part in a big scheme. But if we'll do our little parts, God will put it all together for his glory and for his namesake. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word that teaches us the truth, first of all, of who we are in you. That God, you called us when we were not worthy to be called. You loved us when we were not worthy of your love. Jesus, you went to the cross and died for us when we were your enemies. when we had no regard for who you are. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us even when we were unworthy. And as we've been adopted into this family, we recognize that there are others you love just the same way who are unworthy, who are living in rebellion, who possibly are as anti the church as we could imagine. And yet you love them just the same. Father, help us to have the same compassion for them that you had for us. Help us to recognize 
that though we can't solve the problem worldwide, you have called us and equipped us and given us opportunity to do our own small part to show the love of God to this world. God, I thank you that you have given us the, the example of your word that shows us that what the world really needs is for Christians to come together and to live out the gospel. Father, forgive us for missing the mark sometimes, for staying on the sidelines when we should get involved. Father, may we look for opportunities, small as they may be, to make a difference for your kingdom. And Father, may we take every opportunity that comes our way. Thank you that you have called us and set us apart by your grace and your love alone. May we share that love with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I'm excited about us taking this spiritual gift survey in the next couple of weeks. You know, just for that refresher of seeing what it is that God has equipped me to do, what God has given me a passion for, so that I can find more ways to live out the gospel in my life. I know that I'm saved. I know that He gave everything for me. I want to give everything for Him. My prayer this morning for you is that God would give you that same desire and then speak to you clearly about how to make an impact, a difference for him. Don't despise anything small. It's those small things that can matter the most. Whatever it is, God has given you a unique position, a unique ability, a unique opportunity do it for him with everything you've got. And let him handle the big picture. Because he can do it. You respond to the Lord this morning as he leads.